Good morning. My name is Kevin Johnson. I'm pastor here at Macedonia United Methodist Church. It is a joy to welcome you on this final Sunday of the church year, Christ the King Sunday. Um, this is always, I think, an interesting day in, in the life of the church as we proclaim Jesus as King uh, right before we anticipate his coming uh, in, in the time of Advent. And so I, I welcome you to hear this scripture for Christ the King Sunday from Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33, which begins literally with Jesus hanging on the cross. <clears throat> when they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They drew lots as a way of dividing up his clothing. The people were standing around watching, but the leaders sneered at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he really is the Christ sent from God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above his head was a notice of the formal charge against him. It read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him. Don't you fear God? Seeing that you've also been sentenced to die, we are rightly condemned, for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you that today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week I was thinking a little bit about Coronation Day. And as I was thinking about the words Coronation Day, I couldn't help but think of the classic movie Frozen. Uh, when Princess Anna wakes up and... She, she wakes up in that scene, and she says, it's coronation day, and she's late getting up, and, and she's very excited about the day, and of course, she starts singing, right? And, and a few of you might be able to sing it, and if you can't, shame on you. But anyway, it's just, right? The window's open, so is that door. I didn't know they'd do this anymore. Who knew we'd owned a thousand salad plates, right? And so anyway, there's four of you that have daughters or granddaughters that know what I'm talking about. So anyway, she wakes up, she's excited about the big day, all of the party goods are being brought out, right? And, and this, they're, they're going to open up the gates of their kingdom, it's been walled off forever, and, and, and finally the, the, the princess is coming of age, and so they're going to have this massive party, and, 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 and the chocolate fountain's even there, right? I mean, it's huge, it's, it's going to be a big day, it takes place like in this nondescript church, but there's a Norwegian choir singing, everything is perfect, Every foreign dignitary is going to be there. This is the biggest moment ever for this nation in a generation or two. The only coronation that I've ever seen was on The Crown on Netflix. Right? It, it makes a royal wedding look like a tiny little occasion. Right? A coronation is a massive deal. 
for a country with a monarchy. It is huge. It is substantial. It is, it is world-altering for a country of great power. Friends, the crucifixion of Jesus is presented by the writers of the Gospels as his coronation day. Right? So after his trial and, and after Pilate hands him over, Jesus is taken to the location of his crucifixion. And while hanging on this cross, Jesus utters his first words in this scene. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. A pretty crazy thing to say to the people killing you on behalf of the state. And the soldiers then divide up Jesus' clothing, which is a reminder to us that Jesus is on this cross naked, a symbol of embarrassment and shame, a display that Rome has all of the power and they will dominate anyone who tries to cross them. And then the people watch the events unfold, for crucifixions were a public event. There was no such thing as ultimate fighting or law and order, so people went to live executions instead. But the leaders sneer at Jesus, mocking him. They begin this refrain that he saved others. Let him save himself if he really is the Christ sent from God, the chosen one. And Jesus doesn't respond. There is silence after their mocking. So then the soldiers take their turn and mock him. They offer Jesus sour wine, the cheap stuff, the wine that common folk drank, like two-buck chuck. Not the sweet and costly wine that would be reserved for a king. And they jeer at him, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Luke tells us that Jesus' crime was on a sign above his head. This was the formal charge against Jesus. And that was common practice at crucifixions. Rome wanted to remind the people what the criminal did to affront their power. This is the king of the Jews, is all that the sign read. And Jesus never, in fact, said that he was the king of the Jews. In fact, when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He said, that's what you say. And once again, this call, this time from the soldiers for Jesus to save himself, is met with silence. And then one of the criminals raises his voice, insulting Jesus. He joins the refrain of the leaders and the soldiers, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Jesus, once again, doesn't respond. And it's interesting. Would any of the Roman emperors that they viewed as gods at that time, or at least worshipped when they had to say things like Caesar is Lord, would they have been able to save themselves while hanging on a cross? Well, not at all. The only saving himself that Jesus could have done would have been to get out of Jerusalem in the first place during that week. So instead, after riding into town on a donkey, he chases out the money changers in the temple and he teaches in broad daylight in that week of preparation for the Passover. And it's this other criminal, the one not mocking him, who understands who Jesus is. He's the only one in this scene who grasps that this one hanging on the cross next to him doesn't deserve this at all. According to justice, he says, we deserve to die. We're receiving the right punishment for our crime. But this man has done nothing wrong. That criminal correctly understands the righteousness of Jesus. And then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
this man, this criminal knows that Jesus is a king. That he is going to come into a kingdom and that it somehow is going to happen as part of this death on a cross. And Jesus assures him in that moment, the only other words he will say in this whole scene, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, the kingdom isn't a future thing anymore. The king begins his reign today. And boy, does it look different than any coronation the world has ever planned. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright writes about Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels and how it is indeed supposed to be presented as a coronation. I'm telling you this just so you know I'm not making this idea up. He, He writes, readers are strongly urged to see Jesus' death as explicitly royal, explicitly messianic, in other words, explicitly to do with the coming of the kingdom. Jesus has all along been announcing that God's kingdom was coming. His followers might well have expected that this announcement would lead to a march on Jerusalem, where Jesus would do whatever it took to complete what he had begun. And they were right, but not at all in the sense they expected or wanted. This is what the evangelists, the gospel writers, are saying through this particular moment in the story. This is how the kingdom is to come, the kingdom of God, which Jesus has been announcing and as Messiah inaugurating. So Jesus has been preparing for this moment all along, hasn't he? He's been announcing that the kingdom of God is coming, right? He says that it's here even, in your midst. Then he comes riding into Jerusalem with a procession. But his procession is a little different than the emperor riding into town on a mighty horse with hordes of armies behind him. Instead, he rides into town on a donkey. And later on, the king will be given a crown of thorns to wear, offered cheap wine, and hangs with humiliation naked on a cross. Only this isn't humiliation. This is the king coming into his power. In 2 Corinthians 12, chapter chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus says to Paul, My grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. Earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke 4, it's often considered Jesus' inaugural, inaugural, good Lord, I can't say it, inaugural address. Sometimes you got to say it fast, right? In this address, he lays out his agenda for his administration, for how his kingdom is going to function. These are the priorities that he will take on in his kingdom. And when Jesus goes forward in the synagogue in Nazareth, To read from the prophet Isaiah, he proclaims these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is not the A-list people exactly whom the king usually wants in his corner. The poor, the prisoners, the blind... The oppressed, this is talk that comes from a revolutionary, not from a proper king. A king courts the rich, makes sure that his position is in good standing with the powerful. And T. Wright addresses this power dynamic. He says, the kings of the earth exercise power one way, by lording it over their subjects. But Jesus' followers are going to do it the other way, the way of the servant. 
The way of the servant is what has been embodied then all throughout Jesus' ministry, from that moment of his inauguration into this moment of his coronation, if you will. Instead of catering to the rich and powerful, he caters to the forgotten people. Instead of taking advantage of his divinity, he lays it aside and even suffers. All throughout this way of the servant, Jesus embodies the message of God's kingdom. His entire ministry has been a preparation for when he would be crowned king. Later in Luke 4, he says this, right? He says, I must preach the good news of God's kingdom in other cities too, for this is why I was sent. And it's not just Jesus preaching the good news of God's kingdom. Later in the gospel, he sends out the disciples to do his very work. He sends them in power to proclaim God's kingdom and heal the sick. Friends, we too are sent out in God's power. We are subjects of King Jesus. The name Christian simply means little Christ. The way of discipleship is a way where we follow Jesus' very way of life. So to be Christian is to be sent out in the name of Jesus. We are his ambassadors for his kingdom wherever we are. It is exclusive to Luke's telling of the crucifixion where Jesus asked the Father to forgive the very people who are executing him. This verse is one of the greatest examples of the teaching of Jesus on nonviolence and non-retaliation lived out in real life. When I think about this example, this model of flipping power dynamics, I cannot help but think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. Reverend King was chiefly formed by the message of Jesus. So when the Civil Rights Movement was first training in Montgomery during the bus boycott, and all the way through the major campaigns of Birmingham and Selma, they were teaching people how to respond nonviolently in the face of violence. They were practicing the way of Jesus in real time. It was truly this nonviolent and non-retaliatory method that made their movement so powerful. So in 1963, when Bull Connor brought out the dogs to attack and the fire hoses out on the people in Birmingham, the people did not retaliate with riots and violence. And the nation slowly recognized the evils of systemic racism. True power was on the side of justice and on the side of African Americans demanding equality. Their demands, however, would not have been heard by rising up a militia. Instead, people took up their crosses and showed the way of King Jesus true power. N.T. Wright writes this, our big story is not a power story. It isn't designed to gain money, sex, or power for ourselves, though those temptations will always lie close at hand. Our big story, he says, is a love story, God's love story, operating through Jesus and then by the Spirit through Jesus' followers. When Christians gain too much power, we start acting out of a power story. We stop living from the love story that God has for the world. When Christians gain too much power, we like defining who is out instead of welcoming everyone in. When Christians gain too much power, we get defensive. We build up gates and walls and steeples and put armed guards 
out in front. When Christians gain too much power, we live from a story of decline. We think that everyone else has it figured out or that we simply have to find the next quick fix solution. King Jesus hangs on the cross and displays God's story of immense love. The most powerful being in the universe uses his power to show how much he loves the world he created and came to save. And from the cross, Jesus does two things. Forgives people who don't deserve it and welcomes an undeserving criminal into his kingdom. Thank God that he forgives and assures. Go and do the same. In the name of King Jesus, amen.